This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Becky Strapple-Sovers, and I'm a host with the New Books Network. We're speaking today with Dr. Christine Schott, Associate Professor of English at Erskine College, where she teaches medieval and world literatures and creative writing. And we're discussing her book, Canon Fan Fiction, Reading, Writing, and Teaching with Adaptations of Pre-Modern and Early Modern Literature. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me excited to talk about the book. To start with, can you just briefly tell us about the book? Sure. Uh, canon fan fiction uh, looks at um, modern, contemporary, our contemporary prequels, sequels, and retellings of what we might consider traditionally canonical literature, but it does it through the lens of fan fiction. So the purpose uh, kind of on the whole is really to discuss how works like this, novels, plays, etc., written from older literature, use that literature of the past um, both to keep it alive and um, to critique that kind of literature and how that can be used particularly in a college classroom setting. Great, thank you. So you mentioned, um, just in your answer there, you mentioned fan fiction. In the book, you also talk about adaptation studies and fan fiction studies. Can you just briefly tell us, kind of explain what is adaptation studies, what is fan fiction studies, and how does this new um, approach, canon fan fiction that you've proposed, how does that differ from either of those? Sure. So really, you know, adaptation is in the, the title of my book. So adaptation studies really is a very broad field um, of which everything that I'm talking about is, is a member Um, But when people think of adaptation studies, they generally think mostly about adaptation from novel form to film or from play to film. And so there's usually a cross uh, medium uh, jump between something that was originally text and has now become another medium. Uh, And I'm certainly interested in that. Those are fascinating subjects. But what I'm looking at particularly here is things that start as text and end as text. Uh, They're not making that genre jump, uh, genre jump. Um, So I wanted a a more specific uh, sort of term to think about those uh, particular pieces of literature that I was interested in. 
Um, and kind of on the other end of things is, is fan studies and, and fan studies more broadly uh, will cover everything from fan productions like fan fiction to fan behaviors, uh, um, fan art, things like that. It's, it's again, a very broad uh, category. And what I kind of wanted to do was bring these two things together, uh, talk about um, professionally produced pieces of literature, and that's where they're mostly different from fan fiction, which is usually kind of an underground production produced by fans. They're not paid for it. They're not usually professional writers, although they can be. Um, so that's kind of how it differs from uh, fan uh, fan fiction studies kind of more uh, specifically. And then to narrow down to these, this sort of text-to-text uh, transition from older literature that is already text to newer literature like a novel or a play that, that remains um, textual. So that's kind of where, <clears throat> excuse me, where it sort of um, finds its uh, niche is in between those two things. And I particularly wanted to use the fan fiction notion because you don't have to use fan fiction if you're talking about adaptations or retellings and prequels and sequels. You don't have to use that as your lens. But I was particularly interested in how um, everything I wanted to talk about in terms of the literature that I'm studying for, for this book and, and in my research in general, I can use fan terms to do it, fan fiction terms to do that, um, to talk about, you know, transposition between, uh, say, a medieval setting and maybe when you retell it, you tell it in a modern setting. Um, in fan fiction, that's an AU, an alternate universe. So, and those are familiar terms and they're accessible terms and they don't sound like theory. So I was really interested in how um, you can you can use these terms that people already know, especially college students are they know they're not intimidating, they're accessible, they're almost self-explanatory, not quite, but almost self-explanatory to talk about all the things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, so it makes it more accessible in a lot of ways. Um, and I do think even though uh, these novels and plays that I'm talking about and it's primarily novels, are professionally produced. They're published in a traditional setting, unlike you know popular fan fiction. I do think of um, literature as just a very long-lived and very maybe elite, but certainly high-powered fandom. You know, you have people who love this stuff, and well, that's me, right? <laughs> those, those are academics. So um, it, I think of it as a type of fandom. So I don't think it's um, out of keeping with the idea of. Um, fan fiction to talk about the way we use older literature in these newer productions. Oh, that's that's all really fascinating. Um, and I, you know, it's been a while since I taught in a classroom. I, I'm just I was curious. You kind of referenced this a little bit in your answer. Um, are the students you're teaching undergrads? Um, are they were they all pretty familiar with fan fiction already? Or cause some people think of fan fiction as kind of a niche thing. Um, uh, were most of your students already familiar with it? Was there a lot of catch up there that you had to do or did it just kind of naturally make sense to them? That's a good question. And I think it, it's hard to characterize all undergrads as one thing. Right. <laughs> uh, you, know, you get the, the students who have not really been exposed to that subculture and it is a subculture, but it's a rather large one. Um, but I think even the ones who are not readers of fan fiction, not writers of fan fiction, that's even smaller, uh, uh, it's not a completely foreign concept to them. Um, most of them, at least that I have encountered, have at least heard of it, and they're at least uh, 
they're often familiar with people who have done it. Uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, for instance, made the jump from fan fiction to a published novel, I think that kind of made it a little bit more mainstream, just the, the sort of mainstream audience is more aware of fan fiction than maybe before that. Uh, so something else we're sort of touching on, you talked about, you know, fan fiction generally is often done by by non-professional, quote-unquote mm-hmm. non-professional writers, um, although there are professional writers who do it. I think N.K. Jemisin still writes fan fiction and um, it's publishes awesome. it. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then we have like published um, works, novels, and like modern published works that you're teaching. Um, you... You and a lot of literary scholars wrestle a lot with the idea of a canon, right? And like professional writing versus non-professional and what's worth teaching and what's not, supposedly. Um, And you say in your introduction that you came, you really, excuse me, you really came to this question, uh, came to this book through this question that literary scholars have been wrestling with for decades. What do we do with the traditional literary canon? So how do you um, answer that question or maybe start to answer that question in this book or... Maybe you even opened up even more questions since that seems to be a thing we do a lot of the time. <laughs> I think that's part of our job, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess I could say that this book is sort of my answer currently to what do we do with the traditional literary canon uh, because I'll probably you know change my approach to it as, as I continue to grow as a scholar and as a reader. Um, but you know we're living in a period where everything that wasn't written within the last like five years really shows its age. Back even at 20th century greats, you look at Joyce or Hemingway and you're like, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they thought that was okay. We just don't think those in those ways anymore. And they tend to um, get our hackles up when we encounter things that we think of as, as um, uh, outmoded thought or um, biased thought, which is um, really evident in literature of the past. So, you know, as a teacher of primarily pre-modern literature, I'm coming up against this like all the time. And, um, you know, how do I teach a text that strikes our, our modern readers as xenophobic or misogynistic or, or you know, some other kind of phobe um, that they weren't necessarily aware of? I mean, there's there's also times when older literature definitely pokes fun at the misogynistic conventions. It's very aware. Um, you know, Ch- Chaucer was made fun of for, um, you know, being too too nice to women. He too cared too much about women. So, um, but still, when we even when we read Chaucer, we're like, oh, wow, that um, it's not a story we would tell. So um, how do we, how do we deal with that? And so um, both professional writers and, you know, within the classroom, um, student writers, can deal with that sort of conflict by talking back, um, by taking a story and saying, well, I'm going to tell this story from a different perspective. And probably the one that's most famous and, and that people are most familiar with is um, Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea, which is, I would call, a canon fan fiction of um, Jane Eyre. And um, to put those next to each other, Jane Eyre and then Wide Sargasso Sea, uh, it says, yeah, absolutely, read Jane Eyre and read Wide Sargasso Sea and see how Mr. Rochester might look to the mad wife that he locks in his attic. You know, um, 
it doesn't erase Jane Eyre. It doesn't change what was written in that novel, but it changes the way we see it. And I think usually in a very healthy way, because that's just what we do as we read. Um, and as time goes on, we read differently. And I think that's part of our job and why uh, reading um, is and rereading is always rewarding because we read it differently, even within the stages of our own lives. So as the stages of history have progressed, um, rewriting these things um, both keeps them alive and allows us to address those things that really bother us about them. And in particular, when students get to do that, when I assign students to do it, um, it's like a foothold. It gives them an opportunity to get in. Yeah. You know, that's I haven't thought about White Sargasso Sea in a long time. Um, I, I I think that was on my required reading list, like before I got into high school, the summer before freshman year of high school. Um, we had a book, a list of books to read over the summer, and then we discussed them during the year. And I mean, I grew, I definitely grew up with like um, twisted fairy tales or like rewritten fairy tales and that kind of. Thing. But I think looking back, like I, I think that was probably the first time I read uh, a really an adaptation of like a canon text like that. Um, and I don't think I thought about this at the time, but looking back, like, I think it kind of blew my mind a little bit, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Wow. That's so, that's an interesting uh, kind of foothold into that discussion. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, success. Gina. So in the book, you, you give an, um, a number of uh, examples of case studies. So mm -hmm. some some published pieces of fan fiction, <laughs> excuse me, some published piece, pieces of fan fiction, uh, canon fan fiction, and some uh, like possible assignments in the book. Would you like to discuss any of those case studies or those assignments in more detail? Sure, yeah. Um, actually, the, the part of the book that I thought was the most interesting to write is there is a section, so I have you know, each chapter is dedicated to looking at particular examples of uh, canon fan fiction, uh, and they're published examples. But I do this case study at the end where I try it out myself, um, because I don't think we should assign anything to our students that we're not willing to do ourselves. <laughs> uh, so um, what I did was I took two um, episodes, uh, one from an Icelandic saga and one from a, thought, uh, a short story. These are... Um, 13th century productions. And um, they both have a, a woman character who's the mother of the sort of protagonist. Um, and they both happen to not be able to speak. They're described as malois, um, uh, mute. And so I wanted to see what it would be like to um, take their stories and retell them through their perspective, because they're really ancillary characters. They're uh, they're there in order to give birth to the famous person who's their child. Uh, so I wanted, but I was interested in them. So I wanted to kind of explore um, imagining inhabiting that experience of being both a woman and a woman who couldn't speak up for herself in uh, this Viking age or early medieval setting. And I mean, it was fun in part because it got, gave me the opportunity to switch hats. I went from critic to creator and uh, it also illuminated for me sort of what that process actually is. I was writing, I was doing the same kind of thinking, let's say I was doing the same kind of analysis of those original texts as I would have done if I was writing an article about femaleness and disability in the, you know, family sagas. Uh, I was, if I was writing that article, I would be doing the same thinking. 
but the product was not an article. It was a story. And um, first of all, I think that's more fun to write, <laughs> but also <laughs> it's more accessible. Um, and uh, I think accessibility in, in a period in which our, our field is increasingly marginalized and seen as not particularly important or useful. I think that's um, the more we can do that, the better for us um, and, and for the literature that we love. So it makes it accessible. It makes it something somebody might actually want to read as opposed to nobody's going to read my article on femaleness and disability in the family sagas. So, uh, you know, it, it has that appeal to it. Uh, but the other thing that was really interesting was I realized how much I had to trust my reader because in an academic article, you have a thesis statement and you say, this is what I'm proving to you. And if you don't do that, then it's not a very good article. But if you do that in a creative writing piece, this is what I'm proving to you. This is my theme. Then it's bad creative writing. Right? It's it's um, pedantic. It's kind of insulting to your reader. So in a way, creative writing makes a demand of the reader that academic writing doesn't. It's more accessible in terms of style, but it's asking them to intuit, uh, to deduce and um as we know, you know, from the studies of, of learning, we learn better and it makes a better impact on us, a higher impact on us when we do that learning by induction, by deduction, uh, by intuition, rather than just having it sort of spoon fed to us. So um, I think there's actually that uh, a pedagogical power in um, creating that creative writing because you're trusting your reader to, to think about it and um, to absorb those um, themes themselves rather than you just telling it to them. Uh, and that's scary as a writer because they could get it wrong and they could ignore you. Um, but uh, I think their chances are better of getting through in creative writing uh, than in an academic article where you might actually be clear or you might be able to, to go into a depth that you can't do in creative writing, but your audience is so much smaller. And you're preaching to the choir usually because these are people who already know that this stuff is important. Yeah, your your point about trust, you know, when you're doing a creative piece, you have to trust the reader to kind of get the get what you're trying to get across here. Um, it is definitely you have to, you know, trust the reader and, and recognize that the reader definitely has agency in how they're interpreting the piece. But um, from like a pedagogical standpoint, it's interesting because you do to, to innate, you need to help, you need to help enable your reader to get that as much as possible, right? But without, like you said, saying, this is my thesis statement. So you kind of need to think about what you can put in there for kind of clues or like um, imagery that will help them pick up on that. And um, I hadn't really, I guess I hadn't really thought of it quite so on like a meta level before, but um, that's also a really useful pedagogical tool. I think I've had students do I usually, when I was teaching like intro to literature classes, one of the projects my students did was a was a adaptation piece. So they would take something we had read throughout the semester, and they either had to write it from a different perspective, or put it in a different genre, or um, you know, just change it in some way. Um, yeah, it was great. First of all, they were really fun to read <laughs> and to grade. Um, but yeah, they it really does, like you said, you are thinking about the same things you're thinking about when you're going to write uh, an academic article or a seminar paper or something uh, like that, a student essay. Um, but you're thinking through a lot of those same things, but it can sometimes be much more challenging to then like demonstrate that that's what you were thinking about. Um, and so I just loved that as an assessment tool too, because it really, it, it forced them to think about <laughs> all the things I wanted them to think about. Um, and then also when you're asking them to 
say, change the change a piece to a different genre. Well, they're also having to think about all of the conventions of that genre and then try to replicate them and like really understand that that piece um, and that style of writing and everything. So um, I was sort I, I guess I was sort of doing I was engaging with this kind of idea of like fan fiction and adaptation without really thinking about it on that meta. But it's fun, too, when you discover that students have a talent you didn't know they had. You know, they're struggling in their academic writing and you find out they're a poet um, and suddenly they're good at this thing. And, um, you know, one of the pushbacks that I've uh, kind of seen from assignments like this is that, well, you know, how can you assess that? Um, how, can, how can you say that um, they're coming out of the class with a skill that they didn't have when they came in? Um, and I do, you know, as kind of a, a nod to that and an acknowledgement that, um, analytical writing is important. I do ask my students when I give them that assignment to do like an analysis of their own uh, work. I do the same thing. <laughs> exactly. And, and talk about like, what did you change? Why did you yeah. change it? How does that alter how we see the original? Things like that. Um, but unlike a typical academic paper where, um, you know, they're trying to guess what I think Shakespeare said so that they can reproduce what I think Shakespeare said, you know, it, and there's a lot of stylistic and, and sort of genre related gatekeepers in that kind of academic paper, when they're talking about their own stuff, their confidence level goes way up because they know exactly what they meant. And sometimes those analyses are really useful because, um, you know, they're not trained creative writers. So sometimes it doesn't quite come across. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not really sure what you were accomplishing here. But then when I see them analyze their own work, um, I go, oh, that's what you were going for. You didn't quite accomplish it, but that's okay. You're not a creative writer you were thinking in those terms, you made um, all the connections that I wanted you to make. And not only that, you can write about it in a cogent way, uh, in a way that they often find difficult when they're trying to just write about the primary source itself, because that's so intimidating to them. But when they're talking about their own stuff, their confidence level, and therefore actually their ability to write well goes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was always one of my favorite assignments to, to read and to assess. So yeah. So did you, when you were uh, working on the book, did you learn anything that you found particularly surprising or expect, uh, excuse me, surprising or unexpected? Uh, well, kind of external to the book itself, I really mm. anticipated a lot of resistance from my uh, medievalist colleagues. You know, I'm like, I'm doing a project on, first of all, modern literature, and yeah. <laughs> I'm it fan fiction. Um and I really anticipated that that would be the group that was very resistant to what I was trying to talk about. And that has actually not been my experience. Uh, maybe I just, you know, selling short the, the medieval field and like we're super hip and I just didn't know it. But um, I do think that, as I mentioned before, kind of, and I don't want to reduce everything to the crisis in the humanities, but we know there is one. Um, and as we're seeing our positions not necessarily replaced when people retire, as we're seeing the funding go um, towards STEM, as we're seeing even our students come in with the, what the heck is this kind of class? Why do I have to take this? I'm a business major kind of attitude. And again, that's not all students, but we, we do get that type. As we're seeing all these things happen, I think things that can connect the literature of the past to our present moment in a way that's not, you know, kitschy or forced, but organic and actually useful, as, as I think this is, I wouldn't have pursued the project if I didn't think it was useful. Um, I think that kind of connection feels uh, important. It, it feels like it's doing um, 
the work of our field to sort of perpetuate itself. We, we don't want this to be the last generation of medievalists or early modernists. Uh, we want these pieces of literature to keep going because for all their faults, we love them, you know, and we see their beauty and we want our students to see that beauty and um, allowing them, even if it's nothing else than trying out the style, you know, can you write iambic pentameter couplets, just like Chaucer in the, uh, you know, general prologue? Sometimes they can. And it turns out that gives it value to them in a way that it didn't when they just had to, like, try to figure out what the heck Middle English is, you know? So that was sort of something you thought might be challenging was like the reception in the field. It doesn't seem to have been after all. Um, was there something especially challenging about researching and, and writing uh, all your work on the book? Well, actually, this was in a way a project completely outside of my own field because I was um, delving into adaptation studies, uh, fan studies, fan fiction studies. Um, and these are these are not medieval literature, which is what I was trained in. So um, it in a way was a very humbling process because um, I, I felt like my students did, where I, I opened the first book, I'm like, wow, I don't know any of those words and I don't know what they're talking about and I don't get that reference. So um, it was a good exercise in being a novice again in a field. And that's always a risk, uh, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of rewriting and a lot of feedback from people to before it became something that was, um, you know, worth other people reading. But um, it is, I think, um, healthy for us, especially as we become more expert in our own fields to, to um, not silo ourselves in that comfort zone, but to get outside of it because all literature speaks to all other literature, even if it's not explicitly connected. And so um, we, we can't, I think, usefully silo ourselves in our own little um, uh, subset of, of literature. So getting outside and, and doing other theories and, and getting other backgrounds uh, was, uh, it changed me as a scholar, as well as I hope making me a better reader, which I, I think is um, an ongoing process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it can be useful probably as a little reminder of what your students feel like. It's been so, so long for most of us since we were like at that kind of beginner level in some, in literature at least. Um, so, so I actually wanted to go back um, a little bit. You were talking about the the piece that you actually wrote um, sort of along the same vein as like being in your student's place a little bit. Um, you wanted to, to try out this thing that you were going to ask your students to do. Um, and so you talked a little bit, you were adapting, uh, that was Laxdala Saga, right? And the story of Thorstein Oxfoot were the two that you were working on. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about like how you actually approached that uh, adaptation? You talked about why you wanted to, you know, choose, why you chose that piece, why you were interested in it. Um, but like, like brass tack style, like what kind of things did you actually change? How did you take that original um, those original narratives and, and like, what did you play with and tinker with in your rewriting? Yeah. So, um, the main change that I made was a point of view or perspective change instead of the sort of omniscient perspective that's typical of the sagas. I used a, a third person limited omniscient with, uh, Mel Korka, um, in the Lockstyla saga retelling and, um, Odney in the Thorstein Oxford story. So these are the, the mothers, um, of the heroes. And um, basic, well, it, it was in a way an act of um, sort of radical empathy, I, I think I would say. And I think that's part of what these projects do is they ask us to exercise radical empathy with someone who um, 
one, if they were ever real, were very, very distant from us, very, very different in a completely alien environment from what we're familiar with. And second, probably weren't ever real to begin with. So um, they, um, to imagine what it might've been like to, for instance, have been taken as a slave. Uh, Melkorka was enslaved um, and bought and um, Odney was uh, very much controlled by her brother um, because she couldn't speak up for herself. Um, Melkorka, I, I should say, if you're not familiar with Lacta Saga, Melkorka is silent by choice. Um, she is perceived as mute by everybody around her, but she, it's actually just an act of resistance. She's like, you can't have that part of me. Or at least that's how I interpret it in the, the story, is that she chooses not to give that one last part of herself, her voice, um, to her enslavers. Um, Odney actually can't speak. Um, by the end of the story, she's um, given a magic piece of gold that allows her to speak again. Uh, but uh, she, up to that point, at the end of her role in the story, she, she actually cannot speak. So um, in a way, she's in a worse position because even though she's still with her family, um, her brother basically uh, gives her to a um, a neighbor or a visitor rather that he wants to impress and she ends up having his child. We assume that was probably non-consensual, or at least I assume it was probably non-consensual. Um, and so her story is um, sort of trauma on trauma based on the fact that she can't um, defend herself um, verbally or, or physically. So um, part of the challenge of that project was um, I have no right to tell a story like that. You know, I fortunately have never been in those situations. Um, and so uh, in the creative writing world now, there's a very strong sort of own voices, stay in your lane. If it's not your personal experience, probably leave that to someone else to tell. Um, so I was very aware of that when I was doing this project is that, you know, I have, I have no right to tell or to think I could imagine that kind of story, that kind of experience. But um you know, these are 800 year old stories and uh, no one is alive who experienced anything like that in that particular setting, in that particular culture where the cultural context does matter and how you perceive things. So um, I think if we're going to try to get outside of our own perspectives, um, maybe the literature, the past is the best, is the best place to do that because, um, you know, the, the people we might offend either are dead or have never existed to begin with. So in a way, there's a freedom there that um, I don't think I would exercise in trying to retell a story that um, took place, especially a nonfiction story that took place in the modern period. Um, I just, that would be disrespectful, but it didn't feel disrespectful to try to inhabit those um, perspectives with these very, very old stories. It felt like an act of respect, remembrance, um, an acknowledgement that the stories themselves don't really acknowledge the terrible things that happened to these two women because they're instrumental, right? They're there in order to give birth to the the hero. Um, but I wanted to acknowledge and, and it's an act of, of um, commemoration in a way. Yeah. And like you said, radical empathy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. Thank you. So I always like to ask people what, um, maybe if there was something you were not able to include in the book, because there's always something that's kind of outside the scope, or it's like 
it's relevant, but there's just not enough room to go into it. Um, and so was there something you weren't able to include, but but you wish you could? I always like to give people a little bit of space to talk about like other cool things that they were really excited about and wanted to include, but it just couldn't make it for some reason. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. So it was actually right as the book was going to press, um, I made this connection that had sort of been dancing in the back of my mind and I just hadn't been able to like pin it down in time. Um, I have a section in uh, the introductory chapters where I'm talking about canon compliance. So uh, the idea that some fan fictions, popular canon or otherwise, will more or less honor the, the plot as, they ex as it exists in the original story. And um, maybe they change perspective, but they don't change the events. And then a non-canon compliant piece might take a dead character and bring them back to life uh, with, without an explanation. They're just going to bring them back. So um, canon compliance really interests me. And I was also interested in the fact that a lot of this published canon fan fiction is quite canon compliant, simply giving us a different perspective on what happens without changing what happens. Um, but I'm particularly like captivated by pieces of literature that actually do change the plot, but then give us some kind of explanation for why the version that we know, which is the original, why that exists. And actually a familiar example that people probably know is um, the true story of the three little pigs, where it's a kid's book where the big bad wolf explains how the pigs misinterpreted all his innocent actions as minister. So it's like, well, he wasn't trying to blow the house down. He had a cold and he sneezed, that kind of thing. So, um, and that's a flippant example, but it, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good example. It's a familiar one. So I realized as I was circling around this, what I was thinking about was actually retroactive continuity, retconning. Uh, you get in TV shows a lot, uh, and it's usually in, in television shows kind of a cheap trick because like a character that we thought was dead suddenly is back and they did it because the audiences were unhappy that the character had gotten killed off or the actor managed to renegotiate the contract, something like that. Um, I mean, in literature, it goes back to um, Sherlock Holmes magically coming back uh, after he'd been killed off at Reichenbach Falls. Uh, and uh, Conan Doyle did it because he, he had more stories that he wanted to write, or there was a demand for more stories. And so he brought back the character that he killed off. And so it often comes off as kind of a cheap trick. But in these kinds of adaptations, retellings, I think it's actually really clever because it says, here's the story you know, here's how that story came about, but here's what really happened. And it allows us to object to what happened. It allows us to reinterpret what happened without trying to erase the original. It acknowledges that that original exists and that's how you, you know, there's some explanation for how you know it. So basically it's really clever retconning. And I would have loved to be able to go back into that section in my book and sort of rewrite that in, the, in those terms. And it just, it wasn't possible time-wise. So I hope to get to explore that a little further, but so far it's gone no further than a, a conference abstract. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is really fascinating. I mean, and so, so sometimes these things that like didn't quite make it into one project end up being way bigger than we originally thought and spin off into their own things anyway. <laughs> so awesome. Thank you. Um, so this is a really relevant question for this book, particularly. Um, uh, it's so clearly pedagogically focused. What kind of courses do you think would benefit from including this text or like excerpts from the from your book um, in their reading lists? Um, I like to flatter myself and think any literature class. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And I have uh, used those assignments that I have in the back of the book in the appendix. Um, I've used those assignments on every level from introductory level classes to um, uh, special studies or special topics, English major classes level. So, and I have found them to be useful and they play out differently depending on the kind of student that you have. Obviously an English major who's a senior has a lot more under their belt and a lot more tools to use uh, when they're doing a project like this, but that's true of any kind of project they might do. Uh, but particularly when I was writing this, I was thinking of my um, general education, uh, introductory um you know, literature survey classes that tend to focus on sort of traditional canonical pieces and that are populated mostly by non-majors because that's the audience I think that needs the most onboarding and they need the most scaffolding to understand why the heck are we still reading Chaucer after all these years? Why are we still reading him? And uh, especially if you make them read it in Middle English, it is not going to appeal immediately. Um, and it's going to be hard and it's going to be alienating. Um, and he's another dead white guy. So um, to open the door uh, to a different approach to say, well, what do you think about this? Retell that story. You didn't like that story. Retell it. Um, and I, was thinking that I do mention this um, example in my book, but I had a student who really didn't like the seafarer, the old English exile poem. He really didn't like it. He thought it was boring. Um, and I asked him to rewrite it. Well, I asked him to do a, a rewriting uh, assignment and he picked the seafarer and he rewrote it from the perspective of a modern war veteran who had survivor guilt. And talk about an act of radical empathy, like he just connected with this fictional character um, from um, a piece of literature that's a thousand years old at least, and that at first had no appeal to him whatsoever. And when he rewrote it from that perspective, it touched his own life. It touched his own world. And, um, you know, he didn't become an English major. That's okay. Nobody, ha nobody has to become an English major to appreciate these things. But I like to think that that was a moment that meant something to him. And his um, analysis of that project uh, was really well written and well thought out. So he did spend time processing it in a way that he wouldn't have if I just asked him to read The Seafarer. And even if I just asked him to write a paper about The Seafarer, he probably would have resented it, one, and um, probably not gotten an enormous amount out of it because he was a resistant reader. But by giving himself an entry into it, he suddenly had something to say and it was meaningful. So I, you know, those examples encouraged me to think that, that there is a really important place for this kind of thing in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And you, um, at the end of the book, you have an appendix with some like specific teaching resources, those assignments that we were, we've talked about. Um, one is sort of a general fan fiction, general can, canon fan fiction assignment, um, which really kind of seems like like this is what I was asking my students to do. Um, you basically take one of the readings from the semester and write it in a different point of view or put it in a different time and place, make some other alteration. Um, and then, you know, you give some some suggestions. So, you know, sir, could Sir Gawain and the Green Knight be transferred to a modern American setting? And like, how does that, what kind of temptation might he get then um, compared to what actually happens in that text or what kind of sonnet might might Laura write Petrarch in response to his sonnets? That's really interesting. Um, and then include an analysis of the work. So that's one kind of general 
um, approach to this, which I think could be helpful in, like you say, a lot of literature classes. You also have two other assignments, though. One um, you call Fix-It Lit, and that, well, why don't you explain what you, what, what is Fix-It Lit? What kind of assignment would that be? So Fix-It Lit is probably my favorite kind of fan fiction, <laughs> where you take something that you didn't like about the original piece of literature or, or media, and uh, and you fix it, you change it. And often in popular fan fiction, this is like bringing characters back from the dead that, you know, we, we can't believe you killed that character, so we're just going to bring them back. Um, or find another way for them to get out of that situation that doesn't involve their dying, so rewriting that scene. Um, but it's also what we do when um, we rewrite this this uh, traditionally canonical literature um, in a way that reveals its um, its biases or its its faults, registering some kind of complaint and not necessarily changing it. I think of um, Pat Barker's *The Silence of the Girls*, which I have a chapter on. It's a retelling of the Iliad from the perspective of Briseis, uh, war prize, Achilles' war prize. And um, it doesn't change the fact that um, she is captured in war. She loses everybody she loves. Um, he rapes her. You know, it's, it's um, a pretty rough book. It's pretty difficult to read, actually. But it, it registers that complaint in a way that it, it just says she... Let's imagine her as a real human being and what that real human being might have experienced in those moments where for Achilles, she is a war prize. Um, and for Homer, uh, she uh, like her longest speech is her lamenting that she will never get to marry Achilles. And Pat Barker's like, I don't want to marry Achilles. <laughs> so um, that to me, that's fix it lit, right? It's, it's not actually changing the plot, but it is saying, did you realize this is a problem? Because it's a really big problem. So um, I will uh, often ask students in that rewriting assignment, that, that fan fiction assignment, to, to do that. Pick something that really bothered them about a piece of literature that we read. And they usually have many candidates for things that bothered them about the stuff that we read. Um, and uh, rewrite it. Either change the plot and fix it or rewrite it so that we acknowledge that that's a problem that maybe the original literature didn't acknowledge. And, and I think that's empowering for people who sat there the entire time they were reading The Merchant of Venice and they're like, I can't believe he's saying all these anti-Semitic things, you know, and they don't necessarily have the context to um, put it next to the Jew of Malta, for instance, which I don't teach in my classes. And so Shylock looks just really pretty bad, even though if you have the context, he's... Um, there are things to be said in, in Shakespeare's favor and the way he empathized with Shylock, but coming at it from a modern perspective, particularly if you happen to be Jewish, really offensive. And so what does that story look like from Shylock's perspective? Um, and, and that actually, there's a Hogarth Shakespeare series, and there is a book called um, I Am Shylock, or My Name is Shylock, uh, written by a Jewish author who responds in that way. And so it, it's empowering to, to give students, and not just professional authors, but students, the ability to talk back and say, you know, this really bothered me, and I'm going to try to address it. Yeah, and I also imagine that would be, I mean, so many of our students have no problem raising their hand and saying something about this bothers me, or this is offensive, or but, um, but a lot of our students aren't real big talkers in class, and they might sort of feel like something is rubbing them the wrong way about a text, but maybe they don't really have like the vocabulary to express why, or they're just kind of um, shy about speaking up in class or feel a little vulnerable and don't really want to 
bring this up in front of a whole class of people and bring it up for discussion. So I also imagine this gives them a chance to like to um, work through those things and to think about why does this bother me? And, and um, I want to like process that and analyze it a little bit and actually respond, to, as you say, talk back to that text. So I think that offers them a really unique opportunity to do that too, beyond just bringing it up in discussion. Yeah. And to get beyond the knee jerk reaction as well, because right. if you have to sit there with that character, um, you probably learn a lot about that original piece of literature um, by having to reread it several times to get the idea, you know, to get the details right, things like that. Um, it forces students to get beyond the knee jerk, oh my gosh, that's really misogynistic. And I'm not saying it's not misogynistic, but um, there's usually more to it than that. And the response to that um, knee-jerk reaction when it when it gets extended over time, when it gets analyzed, I think allows them to um, uh, say useful things about it, learn about their own reaction, and, and also learn about that original piece of literature. Yeah, for sure. And then I think the third um, assignment that you include in here is uh, canfic canon. I have having a hard time saying that for some reason. <laughs> canon fan fiction and theory. Um, and as you say, it's it's this one is geared toward the sort of higher level students um, or students, you know, a, a class that has incorporated some sections on theory. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what that assignment is, too? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've done this with English majors um, in a class on adaptations where the syllabus was sort of organized by identity theory. Uh, so feminism, queer theory, um, uh, et cetera. And we would read pieces of literature uh, of um, what I call canon fan fiction, these adaptations um, that respond in a, in, in a way that we could frame uh, by identity theory. And that's actually how the chapters are organized in my, in my book as well. Uh, so for instance, um, uh, Maria Devana Headley's Mere Wife is a modernized retelling of Beowulf, but from the perspective of um, the female characters, um, the equivalent of, of uh, Wealtheo and um, Grendel's mother. Really, really interesting piece. It uh, doesn't always land with the students, even the English majors, because it's very kind of postmodern in style. But um, we can look at that through the perspective of feminism um, and a feminist lens. Whereas if you just read it straight, it, it just it feels very jarring. It, it's not entirely accessible. So to give them a lens to look at that piece of literature through is very useful. Um, obviously, that's nothing new to literature. This is what we're doing all the time. Uh, but, you know, to do that particularly for uh, the structure of an adaptations-based class, that was how I did it. Uh, and then I asked them to do the same thing themselves, to try it out, uh, take a piece of literature that they had read in another class. And because they're English majors, they had read literature in other classes and, and to try it out themselves. And in their analysis, um, use the theory that they're familiar with, whether that's queer theory or, or feminism or disability studies or whatever, and, um, and analyze their own work through that lens. So it gives them the additional practice, not just of, of writing the way I'm asking my general ed students to write, um, but applying um, identity theory in a way that um, is cogent and, and they have to think about the theory and often they end up actually citing, you know, uh, Kristeva or, or somebody else that, that we've read in the theory class. So when you have a, a cohort of students who have that sort of expertise, they can just take it to a level that um, a general ed student uh, might not be able to do in, in the same way. 
Great. Well, thank you. That was fun to like talk through each of those um, assignments in the back and, and dig into those a little bit. So, and I think they can, yeah, it sounds like they can be, especially like the general one and the fix it lit could really be useful in a lot of different literary classes for sure. So right just before we end, I, I like to um, end all of my conversations with authors uh, with a specific question about um, this book was published through Medieval Institute Publications. Um, and that press uh, likes to employ innovative and interdisciplinary approaches to what it has meant to be human through the ages. Um, and so I just like to ask authors, MIP authors, what does this book teach us about what it means to be human? Um, let's say now. Yeah. Well, for all that my field is sort of backward looking, I'm a you know medievalist and I teach uh, pre-modern literature primarily. And this uh, book, the, the original pieces of literature are all um, uh, pre-modern or early modern. I think this is very much a discussion about what it means to be human now. Um, and we're very aware of, um, of bias and we're very aware of its consequences and we're very aware of how strong it was in the past and how strong it remains now. And, and it colors our, our um, thinking about the past especially the literary past where it's just, it wears it on its sleeve. It wears its biases on its sleeve. And for all that, um, our traditional canon, just speaking of, you know, English, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, um, we may have sort of tipped them a little off of their pedestals, but they haven't gone away. We're still teaching them. Um, I still think if you don't know any Shakespeare, you're not going to get like any of the learned jokes that you get even in popular media. Um, I mean, if, if Veggie Tales can do an episode on Hamlet, they really expect you to know Hamlet just as an ordinary person, you know? So there's still this enormous cultural power that this literature has. And it and I don't think it should go away necessarily. I think it should be joined by, you know, the other um, pieces of literature that have been ignored. But I don't want Shakespeare to go away. I, I love Shakespeare. So um what we're trying to do in our classrooms, I think more and more, especially in our gen ed classrooms, is to bring together those two sides of things. We are very aware of the now and we're very focused on the now. And at the same time, the past doesn't go away. At the same time, the past drives us crazy uh, because, uh, you know, it, it's full of all these things that we look on as not just outmoded, but even abhorrent, uh, you know, and it's not necessarily aware of those things that it's giving us. And so, studying professionally published adaptations, canon fan fiction, and then asking students to do it themselves, I think it allows them to live in the now, right? It allows them to bring that forward and, and put it in conversation with the things that they care about and the things that matter to them and bother them. And I think the more we can do that for our students, the more we can, um, not to be presentist, but the more we can say this actually does matter and it can affect you and it, um, it has its beauties as well as its, as its uh, beasts, um, the more I think we can connect our students to that literary past that is their inheritance as much as anything else. Um, I think that's all the better. The more we can do it, the better. That is a great place to end. Thank you so much. Just a reminder, the book is Canon Fan Fiction, Reading, Writing, and Teaching with Adaptations of Pre-Modern and Early Modern Literature by Christine Schott. Thank you so much for joining us today. A really fun conversation. Thank you for having me.